wet hair, check. A beverage, check. Nighttime shoot, you know it. You know it. If you're the OG listener, you know what this means. It's just another heavy hitter. It's that kind of day. It's that kind of vibe. I used to do this in particular during October when I was covering serial killers. This was the vibe every single week. There had to be a drink for me to cope. It had to be nighttime for some reason and I had to have the comfort of just getting out of the shower and then like coming to deliver this story. I had to feel clean to tell you a story about a dirty motherfucker. What is not to understand? This week, guys, I think I have finally done it. It took me about 70-something episodes, but I think I have finally found the craziest story on the internet that nobody talks about yet again. It always happens this way. People overdo so many stories, and then there's so many that are neglected that are just batshit insane. I've seen one podcast episode covering this guy. I was like, what do you mean? This story was so unpredictable. Every single paragraph, I was like, he he did what? He did what next? What happened next? What the hell? So as always, a story of that intensity requires the expression of the day to be ridiculous. So let's dive into the expression of the day and then into the story of Robert Bales and Kandahar Massacre. Have you heard about it? Most probably not, because nobody talks about it. I told you. Okay, calm the fuck down. (laughs) The expression of the day is one that I use on a daily basis. I have used it during almost all of the podcast episodes, especially when we spoke about heists. The expression is leg it. What does it mean? It means to skedaddle in it. It means to run fast, to get the hell out of the situation. Just leg it. But what I had no idea is where this term comes from. Because now when I picture it, I just don't want to say it anymore. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. Knowing the expression kind of ruined the term for me. So there are timestamps on the screen if you don't want to know. You can always just skip to the case. But it is interesting. But it's just funny. It's funny. It ruined it for me. I was saying it with such power, with such whim, with such energy. And what it actually means, well, it was an actual profession in 18th and 19th century here in the UK. Well, probably elsewhere as well, but especially here in the UK. And people who were legging it were called leggers. So what this means, you know boats, right? (laughs) And you know canals, This was a bad idea. I was not used to drinking on the job anymore. So, you know, boats and canals, yeah? Well, boats would still, in 18th and 19th century, have to go through the canal tunnels. I know wild boats had the same function as they do today, but... These tunnels were built differently. They were built without the towpath, like on top of them. What that meant is that they were insanely shallow and narrow. But I think shallow would be the best portrayal. I'll put pictures in the YouTube video if you're watching there. And this was primarily because if you were to build a towpath, like it would be a lot pricier to build it. But what is meant for boats is that you had to have a manner of going through such canals. So just imagine it. Basically, you would be squashed underneath this tunnel path. So what you had to do is usually it would be two people on the boat. Both of you would lie down, but you would lie down in such a way that your legs are moving alongside the wall of those canals. So both of you are literally lying down. Your heads are like touching 
So you're lying down head to head and your legs are just moving step by step across the wall of this canal until you pass it, until the boat is out of it, and then you can sit up again. You get it? And that was called legging. And it was a profession. And it was paid like 11 pounds. I don't know per what, like per day, per month, per year. They just don't say it. I doubt it was per hour though, but maybe a sip of beverage for the lady. Did you just call yourself a lady? As you could imagine, this was working your core, like next level. They actually had to develop this thing. I think they called it like a wing. So basically just like a pole. <laughs> Why the way you're explaining this? No, it's nothing is clear to anybody. It is the best thing yet. What the fuck did they call it? A plank. Yes, it would be just like a plank, like a wooden plank, and then you would still do the lying down head to head, and you would just hold on to that plank with your dear arms, and you would hold for your dear life while you're using the force of your core, your abs, and your legs to just propel that bow. You get it. Move on. Move on from the expression of the day for the love of God. Which means, if you haven't noticed yet, that legging it wasn't about speed in the first place at all. It was the literally Linda of all of the expressions. Yeah, they got him. I think, I think everybody is on the same page here and we can move on freely. Oh yeah, another important thing and then we're gonna move on. While they would be lying down, they would often use a sack of grain between their back and that plank to help them with a the discomfort because this just wasn't comfortable. If you can imagine, you're lying down on the wood head to head with another person holding on with your hands onto that wood like you're getting fucked in hay. <laughs> completely different experience. Not that you would know. I do want to get fucked in hay. Wow, you live and you learn something about me during every single episode. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's great. My parents don't have great understanding of English. <laughs> they don't listen to this. Okay. I can say whatever. That's why these podcast episodes are highly sexual. Yeah, <laughs> they got it. And also crucial thing about lagging and about laggers is that they had to be in sync. Rhythm was very important. So I don't know, would they hum? Would they just like, how would they do this? But of course, it's a lot easier if both of you are at the same section of that tunnel and then you're just like threading along all together. Cool, I think that was enough as for the explanation of lagging. Hi, I haven't introduced myself. Just imagine somebody starting this podcast from this very episode. They're so confused. They're like, is this linguistics? Is she just, is she, what, what is this all about? Good question. <laughs> Great question. The podcast is called By All Means Necessary. And it is light-hearted view on, on life, mostly true crime. But like, life as well. And just things that fascinate me. So usually linguistics, yes. Expressions of the day are always here. I mean, from this year onwards, so that you are richer in 52 expressions by the end of this year. And then the rest of the episode, about 90% of it focuses on a true crime case. And that is where we are going next. If this is your first time here, or if you are just lazy motherfuckers that don't follow instructions, go and follow me on the social media and interact with a girl. It is twitter.com forward slash deadbampod or instagram.com forward slash deadbampod or patreon.com. Same shit everywhere. Okay, you got it. Except on YouTube. On YouTube it is just called By All Means Necessary Podcast because that's what the podcast is called. Now let me tell you the most insane story you will ever hear. Let us dive into the case of Robert Bales. 
On the 11th of March 2012, Robert Bales killed 16 Afghan civilians while serving in the army. To commit this spree, he would leave the base twice. On the first occasion, he left the base, killed four people, and then returned to fill up on his ammunition. Then he would proceed to leave the base and continue his spree, which would end up in murder and desecration of 12 more victims, by all means necessary. What were his motives? If you have just witnessed what I have done during the intro music, I have tried mixing, not mixing, taking a sip of recorded league, whatever this thing is called, like cider, and then taking a sip of coke, like alternatively. My, they understand how sips work. It, it's not a mixture. It's not. I have tested it out so that nobody else has to try it. I don't know why I wanted to test it out. <laughs> I don't know. Nothing makes sense when you have a couple of beverages. Okay. For a bit of context before we dive straight into Robert Bales' spree, which was the place close to the base where Robert Bale was, is the birthplace of the Taliban movement and has traditionally been connected to it. So what this means is that the area that they were already based in was the area that was famous for the fighting, for military surges throughout 2010s, has brought an increase in airstrikes, raids of Afghan people's homes, and has already brought the increase in special forces operations throughout Afghanistan. And the US citizens that would serve in the army knew that and didn't do much to help. Rather, a couple of months before the shootings we're talking about today, US Marines were filmed while they were pissing on dead Taliban fighters. And then only three weeks before the massacre of the day, there was an incident when again US people were just burning the copies of Quran. So that's just a bit of context, because I think every single thing in this story is important for you to understand the mix that was required for Robert Bales to do what he did. By the end of the story, you will feel like as if it was just adding fuel to the fire, like it was already a dangerous situation. It would have probably happened somewhere, but the fact that it happened here means just so much more. What already didn't happen, the mindset that Bales had about his situation and about the villages surrounding them, was that his own army, so his American soldiers, discovered this explosive device of 150 pounds buried in Nahabien, which is just like another tribe that will be of the importance today, which was also close to the base. Five days after they discovered this explosive device, on February 29th, they actually discovered a rifle, a satellite phone, two motorcycle batteries that they suspected were used to power the explosive device, and 30 pounds of hash. And finally, to culminate all of that, on March the 1st, Bales and his men were ambushed by who they thought were the men of Taliban. 
But when Bales and his men went to the special forces commander to ask for the air support, well, this guy denied it because he was like, okay, this is collateral damage. Like, there's nothing saying that they wanted to activate this missile. There's nothing saying that they actually wanted to activate these explosives. We don't have enough to just send like a hellfire missile and blow these villages up. We just don't have enough for that. So, of course, Bales was pissed. His quote on this in particular is, We had the opportunity to kill the enemy, and due to civilian considerations, the commander refused to drop the hellfire. I couldn't understand why you could have an enemy pinned and you wouldn't engage them as a target. In my mind, by allowing the enemy to survive that, you allow them to become more brazen. We had signal intelligence where we had them laughing and cheering over their communications about engaging us and getting away. I mean, these are things that are psychologically defeating, end quote. So that's just the intro of the story. For you to understand, there is already bad blood. This isn't already an amicable situation. And Bales is about to exploit it to the fullest. About 90% of the information for this podcast is from this GQ article. Yep, GQ. Just the most eloquent thing. They have done interview with Bales. They have interviewed other people, the victims. And the article is called Robert Bales Speaks, Confessions of America's Most Notorious War Criminal. So where we meet the raging Robert Bales is when he is 38, this article beautifully says that he is already balding and he's already getting stockier. He isn't like at the peak of his career. He's already 210 pounds. I don't know why we know that, but sure. <laughs> they probably like added another 10. They're like, fuck him. Why would we say 200? He's a war criminal. We don't give a fuck. And when we meet Robert, he is already at the rank of staff sergeant and he has 19 men working under him. And the vibe that you get from Robert Bales, if you haven't realized so far, is that he knows what he's doing and nobody else does. He's a bit like me in professional setting. He is a bit Hermione Granger in every situation. So he was of the belief that his men were never sufficiently prepared. They didn't know what they were doing. And his superiors also, they, they also didn't have a clue what they were doing. They were too passive towards the enemy. So he couldn't really get his way. And that really pissed him off because that's what Robert Wales was all about. He was really just about like getting his way or no way. So the way he saw those two things clashing is that he just wasn't getting respect from any end, any side. Like his superiors weren't respecting him and his inferiors weren't respecting him. He was just like, oh my God, I'm a white man in my 30s. Like somebody, please give me some respect. I love straight men. No, straight men are great. Straight men never commit these kind of crimes. No, actually, in 100% of cases, they were straight men. So, yeah, sorry, <laughs> that was unfactual. This next story might seem a bit bizarre for me to tell, but it is, I swear, I swear there is a point. And the point is, it showcases you his character, okay? So it also happened the night before the massacre. So it just tells you the state of mind he has been in. Why I'm saying that it might be bizarre? Because at the center of this story is a tree. Yeah, so there was this dead tree on their base that was about 30 feet tall. And so, of course, it was like visible from everywhere. But Bales, Bales fought. Bales on that day, he was, I don't know, idle. He didn't have nothing to do. 
he thought, you know how we found all of these explosives here and there on different sites? This tree is a perfect next location. This tree is where they hide it. It's how they blow us all up. So my solution to this, as Robert Bales, the delusional freak that is paranoid beyond, beyond everything, is that we need to take this tree down. Not just that he is idle. He now asks all of these men that are working underneath him to find a chainsaw, and then the blade on the chainsaw was dull. So he's like, oh my god, we need to dead core the T. What this means is that they technically need to blow that location up. And I was like, do you not see the correlation? Like you're trying to avoid this from happening, but you want to blow up a tree. Also, environment, bitch, like this is triggering on many levels. That cording involves wrapping these explosives and taking the tree down by blowing it up. But then they spent hours doing this. Once they have actually done this, then the trunk of the tree got stuck. So that took more time to release that motherfucking trunk. And during all of this time, the Taliban men, or who he thought were Taliban men, are kind of like firing warning shots. They're just like, what the hell is going on? Like, you're on our grounds, and you're just detonating the tree and the explosives in our area, and then you are saying, like, you're afraid we are going to do the same thing. So Bales was just pissed. Like, for hours, he's just seeding, trying to, like, remove this dangerous tree and dangerous spot, while, well, basically, he's just getting more and more frustrated. Because he's now worried about a full-on attack from the Taliban forces. After hours of doing this, they finally drag this tree back to their base. And this is where it would sit for days. And for Bales, from this article and people that interviewed him, this just represented his inability to stop these insurgents, to stop the Taliban forces from attacking his own men and his own army. Because yes, they have now removed one tree, but there will always be a next spot that he might not be able to foresee, he might not be able to prevent, and nobody else is taking him seriously, so nobody else is just jumping and looking for all of these spots that in his mind only he can see and spot. So after literally spending the whole day hacking this tree down, he was to be on guard duty between 8 and 9 p.m., and he wasn't alone at his guard duty. He was there with a guy named Michael. And here is where we meet the promotion, Robert. The most annoying one of them all. Like, there is a dark, morbid Robert. There is a promotion, Robert. The whole time, between 8 and 9, he was just telling Michael, he knows there is a promotion coming up for him. He knows he deserves it. But he'd already been up for a promotion and they didn't choose him. So he's worried now. And this guy is probably there like, oh my God, pulling his hair. Just imagine, there's nothing worse than a person convinced that they are about to be promoted. And then like their hopes and dreams just being shattered. And you know that they won't be promoted. You're just there, uh-huh. No, you totally deserve it, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it will totally happen. You're like, oh my God, this delusional person needs to leave this fucking company. What the fuck? And the second that he stops talking about his promotion and how he's totally ready and totally gonna get it, that same second he gets paranoid. He sees the lights from the houses of nearby villages Nahabien and Alikozai coming on. And he's just like, this reminds me of the rural farm area. This is it. It's pitch black. You never know. You can never expect like when the light is gonna switch on. And then all of a sudden you see the lights from the north and from the south. And Michael is there like, Jesus save me somebody come here like they're just flipping on a light switch in their house like robert can you 
to reason with me. Like, they're literally just like maybe sitting down for dinner. Like, what the fuck? To which Bale says, no, 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 these are the insurgents. They're sending signals to one another. See, when they flip a switch and then this house flips a switch, that's a signal between the houses. Michael is there like, fuck me, man. This is escalating. This is like next level. And he's telling Michael, no, no, no. I can see it in your eyes, you think I'm a bit paranoid, but don't you remember, a few weeks earlier, there was a Navy SEAL unit that spotted other fighters taking refuge in Alikozai, that village nearby, and other soldiers were just collecting and seizing weapons from the homes in Nahabien. No, I know exactly what I'm talking about, this is why I'm observing what is happening, because they're planning, they're planning an insurgence. My only comment I put in this section is this is him sober because what happens next is that he gets alcohol in his system and he's not just about to record a podcast, is he? No, this will affect him. Like a lot of things affect Robert Bales, a lot of things that happen in his brain, but alcohol sure as hell does not help. So after his guard duty, whatever, and that whole day of hacking this tree down, he then joins these two sergeants, Godwin and McLaughlin, to drink some JD and coke. They're not supposed to drink on base, but then Robert is not supposed to do anything that he does next either. While he's drinking, he is complaining about his marriage. He's just shitting on his wife and how they're in debt and how they have two small children. They're in financial trouble. They're fighting constantly. He's just like the most pleasurable person to be with at this time. <laughs> like Michael probably just left and was like, oh my God, thank fuck I saved myself from this guy. And now these two sergeants are like, yep, yep. And then, when he doesn't speak about his wife, what does Robert speak about? Promotion. Yeah. <laughs> so about six or seven drinks in, they switch on this movie, Man on Fire, starring Denzel. <laughs> you know, the Denzel. Denzel Washington. The only Denzel. And this movie, I have watched the trailer. The trailer doesn't make sense. Sorry, Denzel, but it just doesn't make sense. But the movie is a revenge fantasy where this ex-military bodyguard goes on a murderous spree after the girl that he was hired to protect, because remember, he's a bodyguard, is kidnapped and then he thinks she might be dead. So that might have influenced something, triggered something in his brain. Not the best movie to watch if you are in the state of mind as Robert Bales was in on that evening. But I mean, what do I know? <laughs> I, I do know it's not the best movie. Don't don't watch it. If you're already triggered by this kind of thing, don't watch it. Around midnight, he's wasted at this point. They have watched this movie. It has probably filled his mind with some ideas. He spoke about promotion. He spoke about how dissatisfied he's with everything about his life. And this is when he goes to bed, but he doesn't go to sleep. He takes some over-the-counter sleeping pills. And he makes sure that the sergeants know, like, okay, yeah, I'm just about to go to bed, take some sleeping pills. You know, I haven't slept in days. Like, oh my days. Like, all of the trigger warnings, all of the red flags. Just knock him the fuck out so he at least sleeps. But the pills didn't really help because he had all of the substances in his system by now. So instead, he gets up. And this is where it turns bad, like real bad. 
Okay, before he turns bad, he turns so Robert Balesy that it cannot get any more Robert Balesy than that. Because again, what does he do? I think you know where this might be going. But this time, he actually goes into like a room of this Sergeant Clayton Blackshear. And he's like, listen, I can't sleep. I'm actually very much concerned about how my men are not doing enough to get rid of Taliban insurgents again and again. And he is asking him, like, hey, you know, I'm up for promotion, <laughs> that whole drill. Uh, can you, like, let me have more responsibilities? You know, I really want to just, like, get this promotion. I need more money. And this guy is just like, I'm literally in bed. Like, can you get the fuck out, you weird heterosexual man? So Blackshear is there like, uh-huh, uh-huh, of course, of course. Because that's the conversation you have when you want to get rid of somebody and go back to sleep. So he's like, yeah, of course, no, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that tomorrow, Bales, yeah. Okay, cool, goodbye. So now, of course, this doesn't help Robert Bales because he knows that this man just wanted to get rid of him and go to sleep. So he's just seething and raging inside even more. My commentary on this is that Bales is like all of my managers when I would be like, I just want inbox zero. I just want to get rid of all of these emails. Can we just close them all together? No, why not? Just these customers don't need fucking answers. It's great. <laughs> They'll come back if they need to, if they don't figure it out in the meantime. They're like, Maya, Maya, I'm like, I just want it to zero. Why is it so hard to understand? Kind of like that, you know, a shitty analogy, but sort of, something along those lines. So after all of this, he just goes to his room and he's probably just seating, moving around, unable to sleep. And this is when something just switches in his brain and he turns into a freaking villainous character because he puts night goggles on. Nothing good can come after this. Nothing good. Night goggles were not created for like normal people. No. Mm -mm. If you're on TikTok, you probably know of this account. There is this guy who is like, oh, just having lovely time with my crush. And then he just looks like he's stalking this person through the woods. I think it's his girlfriend because they've done like some skits like that. But it's just creepy. It's just very much like Jeffrey Domerish and he looks like one. And he's just the creepiest fucking thing. And I'm like, no. If a single account is to be removed, no. Just joke. Just have better jokes. Don't, do not joke like this. He has like some videos with like, night goggles no and i'm like why no no but what actual purpose are you using them for like are you in a fucking mine and even then like there's probably other equipment i just cannot it's it's villainous behavior okay so he gets out and he passes one of the guards but the guard doesn't think anything of it it's probably like commonality for Robert Bales not to sleep and to just do whatever the fuck he wants and after he gets out of the base he turns north and he knew exactly where he was going he was going to Alikozai the village the tribe that he was talking about before and this is also where the seals had seen insurgents enter the homes of two different village elders called Syed Yan and Mohammed Naim a lot of things are important here, but he actually spends 20 minutes on foot, so he is walking to this place. And he reaches the sergeant, the elder that I just mentioned, Syed Yan's home. And because so many people here just left their doors unlocked, he just slips through the open gate, he gets into the courtyard, and the path to the door, well, there's no light in this pathway, but he has the light at the top of his rifle. So that's that. So he's just walking towards the door. What lovely visit is going to come after this? Nope, none. 
Bales later said he was looking for the elder. He wasn't looking for like children. He wasn't looking to harm anybody else. But there were 12 people that were sleeping inside. From now on, it just starts being bad. And it's bad for like solid whole ass episode. He doesn't encounter the elder he's looking for. He encounters his wife. And the wife was actually older, of course, because these are like people that are elder. And she was sleeping near the two grandchildren. So she kind of like fights. Obviously, she realizes like there's an intruder and she tries to scream and fight. But what he does, he throws her to the ground and stomps on her. And he later said, if someone's engaging with you while you're cleaning a room and they are a non-threat, you're going to push them down to the floor, which is what I did. Like he is reasoning with everything he's doing. This is the scariest part that he does. He's just reasoning every single thing. There's a reason behind it. He's like, no, this is what I learned in training. And you're like, you are inside somebody's house as an intruder. What? He now moves into the next room to actually look for his target. And that luckily allowed women and children to make a break for it and just run to the compound that was nearby. And Bales started following them, but he was just still checking the rooms in the house. So he kind of looked into one of the rooms where Kudai dead, the farmhand, was sleeping. And Bales just shot him a couple of times in close range and killed him instantly. Some people find this next bit a lot more triggering than others killing humans. But now, as he's following the screams of these children, and he's just like a fucking maniac with night goggles, following screaming children, he also encounters a dog that tries to prevent him from like killing the whole family. And without hesitation, he shoots the dog as well. His rationale here, because we have quotes about everything, is you have to understand these people are starving in poverty. The only reason they keep dogs is because they're Taliban. What? Just nothing. Nothing makes sense. Like, all of his reasonings are like the most unreasonable things you will ever hear. Sure. I think he just had to justify every single action he did. He continued... This isn't the United States of America. Fido isn't a family pet. Fido's there to warn that someone's coming. Yeah, like you, like yourself, sir. You are the only threat here in this kind of situation right now. As he's chasing after this family, a guy named Nazir Mohammed encounters him and Bales just starts beating the shit out of him, asking him, where the Talib, where are they? And at this point, this is one of the most brutal parts, but as... He is screaming, the man he is beating up is screaming, the wife Maryam just tries to reason with Bales and ask him not to kill, not to harm her husband, while a three-year-old daughter is crying hysterically. And when he gave this interview to the GQ writer, he said, at this point, this is tough, man, this is really tough. The kid comes running out, screaming from almost the same direction where the dog came from. I shot the kid. It was a quick reaction. You know, to be honest, you know, I hate it. I hate it. Every day, I think about it all the time. At this point, I just kind of turned and killed a man. And pretty much after that, it was autopilot. So after he killed a man, and after he killed his daughter... Ahead of him now, he sees the women that are just terrorized. They are just like, oh my god, what have we just witnessed? Like, none of us is safe. Like, if he killed a three-year-old... We, we stand no chance. 
remember how he was looking for the elder of the house, Naim? Well, these women ran into the room where Naim was sleeping. I think he was dozed off on like pills and medication because he was old. So he kind of didn't wake up during all of this. And they're telling him like, the American is shooting people. We think he's after you. Like, you need to get up. You need to hide. And he just tells the family to hide while he investigates. But at this moment, as soon as he steps out of the room to investigate, Bales shoots him in the face and the neck. He then makes a decision to look into the room where all of these children and all of these women are hiding. And he is looking for one face. Do you know who he was looking for? The wife that first tried to disarm him, the wife that first tried to fight him. And he looks for her face and just points his gun and shoots her right in the head. And the way he describes this next part is as if there was just a switch inside of him. Because after he shoots the actual probable target, because he looked into the room and he pointed a gun at one particular person for a reason, then he just starts spraying with bullets. And he wounded four, all of them who were kids or teenagers. The way he justifies this, because yet again, he's talking about every single thing. He remembers and knows that he has done all of this, and he's just justifying every single thing. He said from prison, I was so angry at these guys. He's speaking about the men who own the home. For putting their families in harm's way like that. I swear to God, this man entered their house. But no, it is obviously somebody else's fault. He continues, you wouldn't have terrorists running to your house bleeding. You wouldn't have people run to your house for aid, where you have your wife and children sleeping. You just wouldn't do it. To me, that's hard. That's really, really hard to comprehend. So I blamed them, but I took it out on them. I was just raging. So the first part of his massacre is over. He killed four people. What do you think he does next? What would a normal person do next? Probably regret it, call the police, get himself arrested? No, of course, Bales does not stop there. He just turns... He leaves the house, he, as he said, is on autopilot, and he starts walking back to the base. Remember, it's about 20 minutes walk. And this is 1.40am, it's less than 30 minutes that his whole murder spree had begun. And why he's walking back to the base is logically, of course, he realized he is low on ammo, he needs a refill of his weapons. So he goes to the base, and here is where he tells another soldier that was still awake what he has done. And the soldier is just like, oh yeah, of course, Bales. Please, for the love of God, if somebody tells you that they have murdered people, believe them. Normal people don't tell you that they have murdered people. If there's one single lesson that you should learn from True Crime Podcast, it is that. So he tells the soldier, yo man, I just killed some military-aged males in Alikozai, and I'm gonna go to Nahabien and finish it. Take care of my wife and kids. And this guy is like, oh, silly bales. Like, what? The guy that didn't believe him actually didn't trust him because he thought he was sleepwalking. Like, is this a pattern so that you just believe, like, also what? People don't just speak eloquently like this when they're sleepwalking. I, I, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. It will never make sense. But also how he should have known for sure that Beelaz was not sleepwalking is that he actually stuck the barrel of his M4, of a gun, under the sergeant's nose and told him to smell his weapon. This is like toxic masculinity 2.0. This is some next level. This is some like bro code that is 
uh, that was unfamiliar to me until this very episode, and I don't like it one bit. I never wanted to repeat itself. Bales later said that he actually didn't expect to come back. He thought that he was going to die in this gunfire. So he was like, why else would I have told him that he should be taking care of my wife and kids? He's like, I don't know, Bales. Nobody knows what's in your head, clearly. You fucking idiot. It's like, why is he blaming it on every single other person? So here he filled his gun and he also grabbed a grenade launcher, a grenade belt, a couple extra magazines for the weapons, and he just rolled back out. He's like out on the streets and through the base and past the guard and nobody is like alarmed. This time he's heading south to Nahabien. If you remember at the beginning of the story, this is where they managed to seize like some satellite phone and rifle. So of course he's like Taliban insurgents. This is where it all begins. They're signaling with Dalikozai. He's lost his mind. And he first goes to the house of a man who was named Mohammed Dawood. He again just walks into their house and all of the family, like the entire family, was sleeping in one room. So he drags Dawood out of bed yelling, Talib, Talib. To which Dawood is trying to plead, like, no Talib, no Talib, but Bales doesn't care. He shot him in the head while the wife was just watching a couple of feet away. Then, of course, Bales is not done there. He just goes back into the house where the wife and six children were just in a state of hysterics. It's like all children, they're screaming. They're just unaware of like what is going on. There is a report that is the most insane thing in this whole story. But Bales denies that it happens, but other people don't. And that is that he actually shoved a 9mm pistol into the mouth of infant child of this family. And he was asking the mother while he was doing this, where the Talib, where the Talib? And the mother was just like saying, I don't know, like, what is going on? He didn't shoot and this was never like fully confirmed. But just the fact that there is an account of it makes me like suspicious. Like, that, I, I wouldn't put it past the man that this didn't happen. Instead, he just snaps out of it. He's like, never, nothing ever happened here. And he leaves the house of the woods and he just goes into the house of another man, Mohammed Wazir, that was about 50 yards further to the west. And this is the spot where the Americans have discovered that huge explosive, like the 150-pound one. Wazir wasn't at home, but 11 members of his family were. So Bale just walks through the door, he sees the dog, the dog gets alerted, Bales shoots the dog. You, you knew, you knew that there was gonna be that. He just does not care at this point. He then enters the room where, again, the whole family is sleeping on carpets. And here he again just starts shooting. But there was a boy called Issa that was just a hero, an attempted hero here in this story. He just got woken up and he was like, hey, there's a shovel near me. Let me just like try to like swing this shovel at this man. Maybe he like collapses on the floor and just calms the fuck down. And I cannot describe to you how much I wish that this story ended here. Just imagine, it's like, ooh, a beefy American overpowered by a teenage boy. How badass would that be? But no, of course, he didn't manage to overpower Bales. And now Bales was like, well, let's make a mockery out of him. Like, who are you to think like you can boss me around? So he just places this teenage boy into the center of the room and he's just even more enraged now. 
And as he is moving through the room now, he's just kicking, stamping on different members of the family. And he beat one of them so severely because he's just pissed about this behavior now that somebody tried to overpower him. That prosecutors said once they visited this crime scene that there was hair and skin stuck to the wall. He now uses his M4 on full blast and he just starts firing bullets and murders all eight people that were in that room. Then he steps out of the room, goes into a different one and grabs Wazir's brother and sister-in-law, pulls them into the room where everybody's dead and then he forces them onto the floor that is just bloodied where people are just lying down and he just empties the rest of the bullets into them. According to the army, again, he's going to deny this. I don't know why he's denying certain parts. I'm not sure does that mean he's just honest and he doesn't want the wrong account to be told because he's admitting to like 90% of the story. This one might be because of a different issue. According to the army, he put kerosene from the lantern that was just sitting there on the bodies and then set the whole room on fire. He insists he didn't do this and that the lantern fell on itself after that but I think autopsy can say that you know was it in that line like you can tell things like this like not even autopsy firefighters like they could tell you know how the fire damaged the bodies and like where the lantern was it's different if you pour kerosene onto every single person versus a lantern fell off and then it affected like one or two people differently like you get what I mean I think I hope but why I don't believe a word coming out of his mouth is because of what he did next. So he says at this point there was no fire, right? It was just like the full room of the people that he has murdered. And he's just looking for weapons because he has emptied like all of his. And he can't find any. But he encountered one more person, the elderly mother of Mohammed Wazir. And he's looking at his rifle and he's like, oh, my rifle is out of the bullets, but hey, I brought an extra pistol. So he had extra ammunition and he just fired this pistol and shot the elderly mother. Then he realized, because obviously pistol is different than M4, you know, different ammunition, that she wasn't even fully dead yet because it's a different bullet. So then he crushed her skull with his boot. He was stomping on her with so much force that her face and head, when they found her, were completely mutilated. And again, the blood was just spattered on the walls of her son's home. But then he picks up the mother's body and then he carries it into the same room where the whole family is lying. And he said later that that lantern already fell off and that the blankets and sheets were already on fire. So that's when it hit him. And what hit him? Well, he says, I think there's a point that, you know, when it hits you, what you did, this is it. Everything you ever worked for, everything you ever loved, is now, in a matter of hours, destroyed. So I sat down in the room, put a gun in my mouth. He's in a burning room, according to him, and he's just sitting, putting a gun in his mouth. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Don't buy it. He said he couldn't do it. He was thinking about his kids. He wasn't thinking about all of the other kids he killed, but he was thinking about his kids. And then he walked outside and then he says he realized he only had a t-shirt and a pair of army pants on, so he was freezing. 
before he wasn't cold at all because i don't know he was an autopilot he disassociated but now he was like oh my god i'm freezing like this is unacceptable so what he does next he realized that the family used blankets to cover doors so he cut the blanket off the door and then used it to cover himself up and I think what he is trying to say here is like how he was completely disassociated. He was in this different state when he was committing these murders, but now he snapped out of it. And he said, this is how I knew where I was. It was the flares. It was the fire. The fire made him realize where he was. I think it's just an attempt to defense now once he has actually committed what he wanted to do and he's killed all of the targets or their families rather and he's finally satisfied with his doing and he's like oh better start thinking about my defense here but then he realized it wasn't the fire that all of a sudden made him conscious it was mortar rounds that were fired by his fellow soldiers from the army base to illuminate the sky because the army base finally realized oh actually maybe he was serious you know there is like some panic in the nearby villages i think he is on the murderous spree yeah good call after 16 people died so bales realized well i must then return to the base just to recap, he killed 16 people, 4 men, 4 women, 8 children. The youngest victim was 2 years old. And his fellow soldiers actually dispatched a device that is called Persistent Ground Surveillance System. It's like a thermal camera that can spot a human walking by. So at around 4.30am, the camera picked up on Bales walking north towards his base. And how they described him walk back into the base was the methodical, confident gait of a man who's accomplished his mission. And definitely would not be able to say that better because that's exactly how I feel about Bales as well. But when the squad pointed guns at him, he looked at McLaughlin. McLaughlin is the guy that he spoke with when he told him, you know, hey, I just killed these people, saved my life or kids or whatever. And he just looked at him and said, are you fucking kidding me? He was pissed that the guy actually snitched on him. Like, what did you expect? And then he proceeded to accuse McLaughlin of ratting him out. Like, what are your priorities, sir? Can we, can we have them straight for a minute? Like, you, you are in trouble. You're in shit here. After this, he was disarmed and turned over to the Green Berets. As this is happening, before I tell you what happened to Bales, let's pick up in the villages. So in Alikuzai, the villagers, in Alikuzai, the fellow people were seeking help for the ones that were wounded and dead. Mohammed Naim's son actually borrowed a car and then was driving these survivors that were wounded to the military outpost for them to get some medical assistance. And these victims, I'm not sure how some of them have survived. Mohammed Naim actually suffered gunshot wounds to the neck and the cheek. The 10-year-old boy, Sadikala, actually had a bullet in his skull. Rafiula, the teenage boy, had bullets in both of his thighs. Worst off, there was a seven-year-old girl, Zardana, who had severe head wounds and was just unresponsive, was like barely alive. It would be hours here on the spot before they would actually transport it via an airplane, via a helicopter, to the larger American hospital. Luckily, all five of these wounded people will survive. I have no idea how, but it just happens. It's a freaking miracle that some of these people actually managed to survive. 
And other villagers are coming with like blankets, coming with supplies, trying to cover the dead, trying to give them some dignity. Because remember the whole lantern story. I said I will be coming back to it. Act of burning people's bodies is considered desecration under Islamic law. That is why I think he denied this particular thing and he just said it was a lantern. Because he knew that like if people think that it was him, he might not make it out of that country alive. And a reporter for the New York Times that inspected the children's bodies that were taken to the American military base reported seeing burns on some of the legs and heads. And of course, later, this kind of thing can be determined by autopsy, it can be determined like by firefighters in terms of the house and how the fire was set up. I think that everybody else except from Bales actually agrees, no, you poured fucking kerosene onto these people and you have set them on fire. As this is happening, Bales is losing it, as he has been doing the whole night. I don't know where he finds the energy. I honestly don't know. How can you be in one single mood for this many hours, like the whole ass day? Like, this is some next level shit. Like, I cannot be in the same mood for longer than like 60 seconds. I don't get this guy. So for the next eight hours or so, according to the army, he would go between like confessing and then uh, obstructing the investigation, just telling like, no, actually, that didn't happen. Where the fuck were you? Why weren't you there to help? Blaming it on everybody else. So he was just, I don't know, he has not slept for days, so he's just constantly on and off, doesn't know what he's saying anymore. He'd attack the fellow soldiers, telling them that he actually can't tell them anything because they're gonna have to testify against him, so that doesn't really go into his favor, does it? When a medic asks him, okay, do you actually need, like, some medical assistance because you have a lot of blood on your clothes? He's like, no, 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 it's fine. But then the medic asks him, do you know whose blood it is? He's like, no, he just shrugged. Like, does not care. Does not care whose blood, how many people. It's just just blood, isn't it? Doesn't care. As long as it's not American people's blood or whatever. But then during this investigation, he's just like, hey, can somebody bring me over my laptop? And they do. And then he starts stomping on it and trying to smash it and probably destroy like the hard drive in this laptop. When he would actually speak, he would say stuff like, I thought I was doing the right thing. I'm sorry that I let you guys down. My count is 20. You will thank me come June, which was when the fighting season usually is when it comes to the army. We shouldn't worry about collateral consequences. You didn't kill these people during the war and the actual battle. Basically, they barely managed to get him out of Afghanistan, which angered the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, who tried to fight for Bales to be tried and maybe hanged for his crimes in Kandahar, in the area where he has committed these crimes. But nope, they got him into the US. And now we're going to talk about his trial. And his trial, not just that it didn't happen in front of Afghani people in the jury. Nope, it happened in front of a military jury. I didn't know this happens, but then America doesn't surprise me ever. So everybody in the jury was like a sergeant or of some post in the military. I put next, his lawyers tried to humanize him the way Kylie Jenner asked for donations for her friend. 
I don't know where I find these analogies, but I remember that story where like Kylie's hairdresser or something, I don't know, something happened in their family and Kylie, who is like a fucking billionaire, didn't give them her own money, but like set up a freaking campaign on GoFundMe or something. Ridiculous. But yeah, so that's kind of where his lawyers went. They called Bales Bobby during this whole trial and I was like, that is no. I don't know how you think that works, but no. Bobby is like, you wouldn't even call a child after a certain age Bobby, but sure, yeah. So they describe Bobby yeah, as mild-mannered. They said, well, actually, the client was upset because of the whole situation, the events preceding this massacre. He was upset because his friend's leg was blown off the day before the killings. And he definitely, most definitely, 100% did not have any animosity towards Muslims. No, 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 you must not see it that way. And they're like, but this is the only way we see it, though. Everything that this lawyer called Brown has done was to portray this message to the public that he's one of the boys, you know, he's one of the bros, and people should see him as such. They should treat him fairly. Like, he's one of you guys. Look at you, military jury. He's one of you. Don't you feel the same? Like, no. His lawyer also said that what the jury shouldn't see it as is what the government sees it as. And the government is going to want to blame this on the individual rather than blame it on the actual culprit, which is the war. He has seen this and rationalized this as him being in the war and just doing what other soldiers do. Then they put a couple of people to dig through his medical history and investigators examining it actually described his 10 years in the army as unremarkable. They said there was no evidence of any serious brain injury or any PTSD. But then his lawyers were like, well, actually, it was the combination of like stress, alcohol, domestic issues. So he just snapped. But also, he was taking this anti-malaria medication called mefloquine. And this is now known to cause a wide range of side effects, including aggression, paranoia, psychosis, hallucinations, suicidal thinking. Remember? That plus like the booze, that plus him not sleeping, this is why he has done it. I am not denying that he had every single drug in his system, but I also think when you look at the motives and when you look at the layers underneath or what was actually going on here in terms of like his animosity towards anybody that is not American in this story. I think there was more to the motivation than like the guy just snapping because he was drunk and on sleeping pills and on mefloquine or whatever. When it comes to Moti, what he said himself is the following. There is not a good reason in this world for why I did horrible things I did. During this interview, he had another thing to blame it on. He actually said he was also taking steroids. So he was taking alcohol, sleeping pills, mefloquine, steroids. Like, am I... Am I even forgetting something? How many chemicals does this guy have on the system and nobody's just regulating it? So he was taking steroids in order to get huge and jacked. And he blamed the steroids for definitely increasing his irritability and anger. But the prosecutors weren't taking his bullshit. They were like, yeah, we don't care about any of these drugs in your system. You seem like you functioned very well. You went through all of these labors. You freaking took the whole tree down the whole day while being on all of these substances. You seem to be functioning throughout all of these days without actually killing people. So, hmm. Prosecutors really hurt him where it hurts him the most. 
They said he was inadequate as a soldier and a man. He was drowning in debt. He was behind on home payments. He was unhappy with his family and frustrated with his military career. Not getting that promotion that everybody spoke about. Yeah, that didn't really go into your favor, speaking about not getting a promotion made. And what really helped the prosecution was the fact that Bales just was never able to explain to the judge why he did what he did. He didn't have anybody backing like PTSD or like rage or any mental health issues. But I think what really happened during this trial is that his own lawyer, Brown, realized he kind of fucked up because he went into all of this being like, no, actually, he's suffering from PTSD. He's suffering from this association, which is the part of PTSD. And, you know, the whole thing of like blaming it on the war and not blaming it on the individual and him snapping under the pressure of being deployed four times in a row, not being promoted, whatever the fuck. But then, kind of midway through, he was kind of getting feedback that if he wants to present this as a political case, then it isn't a legal case. Then, like, he needs to swap his strategies, basically. Because he just didn't have the mental health defense. He didn't have what he initially wanted. So instead, his lawyer proposed a deal for the jury to take the death penalty off the table, and Bales is going to plead guilty. After months of going back and forth, and not just that, but because Bales actually didn't take this deal to begin with, all of the victims from Afghanistan had to be flown to the UK to go to trial to actually testify against him. Just like re-victimize the victims, just absolutely does not give no shit about it. So after all of this, after his victims testifying in court against him, he finally decides that he is going to plead guilty in June of 2013 and he will plead guilty on 16 counts of murder and 6 counts of attempted murder. Bales actually had the fucking audacity when these people were in court to say that he would bring their loved ones back in a heartbeat if he could. Are you okay? But he couldn't give them the answer as to why he did it. And he also couldn't spare them of actually coming all the way to the US to testify against him. So would he really? Would you, Bales? Would you really bring their loved ones back in a heartbeat? I highly doubt it. In the end, the jury took about 90 minutes or so to condemn him for the rest of his life with no possibility of parole. In prison, when GQ interviewed him, he was training to work in the barber shop where he's going to earn some money, you know, that then he can spend for whatever soap and shit. In 2015, when they did this interview, he was still talking to his wife nearly every day. I don't know why she stayed with him. Kari, if you're listening to this, get the fuck out. You deserve better, man. Apparently, because he has kids and because probably he was in the fucking army, he actually managed to, in August that year, so this is probably a regular thing, get out of prison to spend a week at a hotel near the prison where he would kind of go and then come back into prison for a curfew to play with his kids. You know who doesn't get to do that? Yeah, all of the parents of the victims that you have killed. So I'm not sure why this is even considered in his case, but sure, he gets to spend some time with his kids. Yay. And as for the victims, they were, of course, scarred for life. Some of them, even though they have survived, they have had lasting damages. Rafiula, the teenage boy who was shot in both of his legs, walks with his cane still for the rest of his life. And he is worried that his disability is just going to prevent him from finding a wife in the future, finding a job. He says like he dreams a lot about this night. 
in particular that villainous move of him just going into people's houses pushing the door in and just breaking in and doing whatever he wants to do his sister Zerdana the one who was shot in the back of the head actually is paralyzed in the right side of the body and has no use of the right arm and the right leg and never forget when it comes to this case that these were the families that were affected. In particular, Mohammed Wazir, who on that night lost 11 members of his family because of one guy within minutes, including his wife, his mother, and six of his seven children. He actually wanted to make some good out of this, so he moved to the city of Kandahar and there he opened a dress shop with the condolence payments. What these condolence payments were, well, the army distributed some to the families. They gave about $50,000 for each death and about $10,000 for each person wounded, which I'm saying this is not enough. Like, you can't just put a price onto somebody's life, and this definitely shouldn't be the fucking price. And him, just like the rest of his family, when he returns to Nahabien, he just avoids the house because he's like, I'm back there. Like he was that night. He just, it's just the memories just flood him. The man lost 11 members of his family due to fucking bails. And every time he returns to his house, he just feels powerless and helpless. And that, he says, has never changed. As for bails... Uh, this is, this made me happy. This is one thing in this story that made me genuinely happy. So, he's obviously appealing because he's a son of a bitch. So, in September 2017, the U.S. Army Criminal Appeals Court upheld his conviction and sentencing. So, in 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal. He has appealed like for clemency requests like from president and shit multiple times. But, in December 2020, the defense team in charge of bails filed a request for forgiveness for President Donald Trump. They were like, hey, it's man's last year in the office. He might want to do it. But, but on January 20th, 2021, this year began strong because it was confirmed that uh, Trump will not exonerate him. Mm, he will not be forgiven by Trump. I mean, does he not say everything? If If Trump will not exonerate you, you are just a special. You are a different level. You are a different level of a villain. Like, if Trump doesn't want your exoneration on his record, like, considering everything else that he has done in his life, I'm sorry, but I feel I would personally be like, well, I think that's it for me. No more clemency appeals. Why am I wasting people's money? Like, if this didn't happen for me, sure as fuck never will. So I thought you should know that made me happy. Now let's talk about his background a little bit. I won't bother too much. He was in an army. He wanted a promotion. That's what we know about his life. So Robert Bales was born in 1973 and he was the youngest of five boys. He grew up in Ohio. There were no red flags. He was outgoing. He was friendly. He loved to dance. He was a leader on a football team. But after high school, really some flags where I think their flags started showing up. Because he enrolled to college, but then he transferred to the Ohio State University. He studied economics for three years, but then left without graduating. People like that always fascinate me. Like, why did you go for all three years? Like, just, just finish it. Cool. Fuck, it doesn't matter. So after he does that and he doesn't want to graduate, he then gets the stockbroker's license. 
Then he starts trading stocks in small community banks, but he isn't really great at that either. So he just is losing clients' money, family's money, his own money, everybody's money. So people are kind of chasing him for money and him being in debt is kind of a common pattern here. And this is when September 11 attacks happen and he's like at his lowest of the lows. And he feels he needs something to do. And that is when the idea of the army pops up in his head. He said, I got to make something right. Joining the military and fighting for our country was the way of vindicating myself to a certain degree. <laughs> to which I put, joining just for the sake of doing something ain't the thing. Like, just go and join a chess club. You need a better motivation to join certain forces, like police force, firefighters, the army. The army is a really good one. You kind of need to be motivated more than just like, hey, I wanted to join, you know, <laughs> hey, let's join. So he joins the army, super excited about it, super psyched, wanted to join since he was five, most definitely. Then there's a bunch of paragraphs that I don't completely understand, but he completes free tours in the Iraq war. During his 2007 tour, apparently he injured his foot, and during the 2010 tour, he was treated for traumatic brain injury after the vehicle just rolled and flipped over in the accident. And this, again, I believe might have influenced him and what he did, even though at the trial they kind of barely just scraped all of his mental health issues. I'm not denying that that is, again, what happened, but how many soldiers go through the exact same things and don't commit anything even remotely similar to what this guy has done? Also, at this point, he's just a bomb that's waiting to explode because he was involved already in several incidents while stationed at this Fort Lewis that resulted in the police coming to actually respond and see what the fuck is going on. So in 2002, he got into a fight with a security guard and he was charged with misdemeanor criminal assault. But the charge was dismissed, he paid a fine, he made it go away. And then there was another confrontation outside of the bar in 2008. And that was also reported to the police. But again, he's an army man. Why would he file charges? And then he just gets swept under the rug. On top of all of that, remember his wife? Well, she would report that he would often wake up and would have nightmares. And then he just wouldn't sleep for the rest of the night. He would perform a full patrol of the home and then would go outside because his paranoid ass, just nothing was enough for him. So he would also patrol around the house to make sure that there are no intruders, that nobody's attacking his family. And as we know, he was struggling financially, so he had to put the home up for sale three days before the shootings. In terms of his actual promotions, remember that he had that staff sergeant one, he was responsible for like 19 people. Well, all of them believed strongly that he was unprepared for this promotion, that he just got it because he literally begged for it for years. And also what heavily affected him was the last tour, the 15-month tour that he had where he spent three months in Baghdad. And this is where he said he saw some things he never wished he saw. Like, he would see explosives blowing up a vehicle. Like, he would see graphic visions of others killing soldiers. He described these events as as bad as it gets. 
So by the time that tour ended in September 2007, he was 34 years old and he was actually thinking about leaving the army. Because if you remember, he didn't want to be there in the first fucking place. But that is when he got that promotion, which made him be in charge of 19 other people. And he said, I really wish I had left, but I didn't. And on top of all of that, as the cherry on top, just after this tour, so 2010, he goes to the army doctor about the headaches. Because remember, the vehicle flipped, he's also having PTSD and just consuming everything that he sees on his desk, apparently. But he goes to this army doctor and he, of course, knows better than him. So he says, no, 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 I don't have PTSD. PTSD is an excuse to be a coward. So the army doctor is like, then what the fuck do you want from me? Like, what medication do you want? So he agrees to meet a therapist, mainly because he wanted to ensure that he actually does get some drugs for the headaches. But after a few sessions, he just said it wasn't, it wasn't for him. Therapy is truly for the man like you. It was actually made exactly for the man like you, Bales. And he left therapy because the therapist told him that the anger was a mask for another emotion. And Bale said, what emotion? The only thing I felt was weak, talking about my emotions. Where I'm from, men don't talk like that. I told the PTS doctor I was doing better, and he let me stop coming. So, great, toxic masculinity, he was just like, great. I told him I was doing better, and it was another man, so he understood. So, on February the 1st, 2012, when he was assigned to Camp Belambay in Kandahar province in Afghanistan, this is who Robert Bales was. This is what he was suffering from. All of the untreated issues that he just swept under the carpet. So, what do we believe his motives here really were? I put a lot of causes here just like as secondary supportive causes that didn't help, definitely didn't help, but weren't like the actual motivation behind his actions. So was it paranoia and the thought that he was actually protecting his men, that his life was in actual danger? I think that was mostly just to make the cause of his killings justified. No, kind of like Nazi Germany and dehumanizing people because they are lesser than. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yet again, definitely, the fact that he had lack of sleep, PTSD, he had hits to his head, he had untreated mental health issues, was taking that medication for malaria, was taking steroids. Yep, all of that could have been enhancing it. But also people take all of these things combined or individually and still don't kill anybody. And another crucial thing here is that he knew that he needed help. He went to the doctor, he could have gotten help, but he just thought that that wasn't manly enough and that's why he didn't. And just as I said, when it comes to the thought of him protecting his men and making the cause justified, I think that is crucial in terms of like when we look at military men and why do they kill other people within war in general and how do they justify it. So there were these psychologists that said if a soldier reasons that his or her cause is just, then killing sits more easily in the mind. So this is sort of what they have to tell themselves in order for them to actually live with themselves afterwards. This article by the psychologist also said killing in combat for a psychologically normal individual is bearable only if he or she is able to distance themselves from their actions. 
So there is no doubt to me that due to any issues he might have had personally or any untreated mental issues and his inflated ego, Bales stopped seeing humans as his equals. So to show what truly differentiated Bales from the rest and how he saw his fellow humans, I just thought of ending this episode with a quote of one of the victims that they have interviewed from Afghanistan. So this man, a 60-year-old farmer, Abdul Samad, who lost 11 family members, eight of whom were children, he said he had a conversation with his grieving mother, who was holding a dead baby in her arms, and the grieving mother said, They killed a child. Was this child a Taliban? Believe me, I haven't seen a two-year-old member of the Taliban yet. Keep making this world a better place, one motive at a time, and I will see you on Friday.